0: Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 154 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Throughout these even-numbered episodes, we have been going through The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Well, we have finally reached the concluding chapter of this tale, where we have come to the startling realization... Well, I'm sorry, I'm getting choked up here. We have come to the startling realization that Gadsby and his would-be murderer, George Wilson, have both tragically perished over a case of mistaken identity. And so Nick is left to pick up the pieces of this puzzle and begin funeral arrangements for a man he held dear as a friend. So let us walk through this with him as we begin part one of chapter nine, The Great Gadsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. After two years, I remember the rest of that day and that night and the next day only as an endless drill of police and photographers and Newspaper men in and out of Gadsby's front door. A rope stretched across the main gate, and a policeman by it, kept out the curious. But little boys soon discovered that they could enter through my yard, and there were always a few of them clustered open-mouthed about the pool. Someone with a positive manner, perhaps a detective, used the expression madman as he bent over Wilson's body that afternoon, and the adventitious authority of his voice, at the key for the newspaper reports next morning. Most of these reports were a nightmare, grotesque, circumstantial, eager, and untrue. When Nicholas's testimony at the inquest brought to light Wilson's suspicions of his wife, I thought the whole tale would be shortly served up in racy Pascanade. But Catherine, who might have said anything, didn't say a word. She showed a surprising amount of character about it, too looked at the coroner with determined eyes under that corrected brow of hers, and swore that her sister had never seen Gatsby, that her sister was completely happy with her husband, that her sister had been into no mischief whatever. She convinced herself of it, and cried into her handkerchief, as if the very suggestion was more than she could endure. So, Wilson was reduced to a man deranged by grief in order that the case might remain in its simplest form. And it rested there. But all this part of it seemed remote and unessential. I found myself on Gadsby's side, and alone. From the moment I telephoned news of the catastrophe to West Egg Village, every surmise about him and every practical question was referred to me. At first, I was surprised and confused then as he lay in his house and didn't move or breathe or speak hour upon hour it grew upon me that i was responsible because no one else was interested interested i mean with that intense personal interest to which everyone had some vague right at the end i called up daisy half an hour after we found him called her instinctively and without hesitation But she and Tom had gone away early that afternoon and taken baggage with them. Left no address? No. Say when they'd be back? No. Any idea where they are? How I could reach them? I don't know. Can't say. I wanted to get somebody for him. I wanted to go into the room where he lay and reassure him. I'll get somebody for you, Gatsby don't worry, just trust me and I'll get somebody for you." Meyer Wolfsheim's name wasn't in the phone book. The butler gave me his office address on Broadway, and I called information, but by the time I had the number, it was long after five, and no one answered the phone. Will you ring it again? I've rung it three times. It's very important. Sorry? I'm afraid no one's there." I went back to the drawing room and thought for an instant that there were chance visitors, all these official people who suddenly filled it. But, though they drew back the sheet and looked at Gatsby with shocked eyes, his protest continued in my brain. "'Look here, old sport. You've got to get somebody for me. You've got to try hard. I can't go through this alone!' Someone started to ask me questions but I broke away and, going upstairs, looked hastily through the unlocked parts of his desk. He never told me definitely that his parents were dead, but there was nothing, only the picture of Dan Cody, a token of forgotten violence, staring down from the wall. Next morning, I sent the butler to New York with a letter to Wolfsheim, which asked for information and urged him to come out on the next train. That request seemed superfluous when I wrote it. I was sure he'd start when he saw the newspapers, just as I was sure there'd be a wire from Daisy before noon. But neither a wire nor Mr. Wolfsheim arrived. No one arrived, except more police and photographers and newspapermen. When the butler brought back Wolfsheim's answer, I began to have a feeling of defiance, of scornful solidarity between Gadsby and me against them all. Dear Mr. Carraway, This has been one of the most terrible shocks of my life to me. I hardly can believe it that it is true at all. Such a mad act as that man did should make us all think. I cannot come down now as I am tied up in some very important business and cannot get mixed up in this thing now. If there's anything I can do a little later, let me know in a letter by Edgar. I hardly know where I am when I hear about a thing like this and it completely knocked down and out. Yours truly, Maya Wolfshine. And then hasty addenda beneath. Let me know about the funeral, etc. Do not know his family at all. When the phone rang that afternoon, and long distance said Chicago was calling, I thought this would be Daisy at last. But the connection came through as a man's voice, very thin and far away. This Slagle speaking. Yes. The name was unfamiliar. Hell of a note, isn't it? Get my wire. There haven't been any wires. Young Park's in trouble. He said rapidly. They picked him up when he handed the bonds over the counter. They got a circular from New York, giving him the numbers just five minutes before. What do you know about that, eh? You can never tell in these Hick towns. I. Hello. I interrupted breathlessly. Look here! This isn't Mr. Gatsby! Mr. Gatsby's dead! There was a long silence on the other end of the wire, followed by an exclamation. Then a quick squawk as the connection was broken. I think it was on the third day that a telegram signed Henry C. Gats arrived from a town in Minnesota. It said only that the sender was leaving immediately and to postpone the funeral until he came. It was Gadsby's father, a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long, cheap ulster against the warm September day. His eyes leaked continuously with excitement, and when I took the bag and umbrella from his hands, he began to pull so incessantly at his sparse gray beard that I had difficulty in getting off his coat. He was on the point of collapse, so I took him into the music room and made him sit down while I sent for something to eat. But he wouldn't eat, and the glass of milk spilled from his trembling hand. I saw it in the Chicago newspaper, he said. It was all in the Chicago newspaper. I started right away. I didn't know how to reach you. His eyes, seeing nothing, moved ceaselessly about the room. It was a madman he said. He must have been mad. Wouldn't you like some coffee? I urged him. I don't want anything. I'm all right now, Mr. Carraway. Well, I'm all right now. Where have they got Jimmy? I took him into the drawing room where his son lay and left him there. Some little boys had come up on the steps and were looking into the hall. When I told them who had arrived, They went reluctantly away. After a little while, Mr. Gatz opened the door and came out, his mouth ajar, his face flushed slightly, his eyes leaking isolated and unpunctual tears. He had reached an age where death no longer has the quality of ghastly surprise, and when he looked around him now for the first time and saw the height and splendor of the hall, and the great rooms opening out from it into other rooms, his grief began to be mixed with an odd pride. I helped him to his bedroom upstairs. While he took off his coat and vest, I told him that all arrangements had been deferred until he came. I didn't know what you'd want, Mr. Gatsby. Gats is my name. Mr. Gats, I thought you might want to take the body west. He shook his head. Jimmy always liked it better down east. He rose up to his position in the east. Were you a friend of my boy's, mister? We were close friends. He had a big future before him, you know. He was only a young man, but he had a lot of brain power here. He touched his head impressively, and I nodded. If he'd have lived, he'd have been a great man. A man like James J. Hill. He'd have helped build up the country. That's true, I said uncomfortably. He fumbled at the embroidered coverlet, trying to take it from the bed, and lay down stiffly, was instantly asleep. That night, an obviously frightened person called up and demanded to know who I was before he would give his name. This is Mr. Carraway, I said. Oh, he sounded relieved. This is Clipspringer. I was relieved, too, for that seemed to promise another friend at Gatsby's grave. I didn't want it to be in the papers and draw a sightseeing crowd, so i have been calling up a few people myself. They were hard to find. The funeral's tomorrow, I said. Three o'clock, here at the house. I wish you'd tell anybody who'd be interested. Oh, I will, he broke out hastily. Of course, I am not likely to see anybody, but if I do... His tone made me suspicious. Of course, you'll be there yourself. Well, I'll certainly try. What I called about is... Wait a minute, I interrupted. How about saying you'll come? Well, uh, the fact is, the, the, the truth of the matter is that I'm staying with some people up here in Greenwich, and they rather expect me to be with them tomorrow. In fact, there's a sort of picnic or something. Uh, of course I'll do my best to get away. I ejaculated an unrestrained, huh. and he must have heard me, for he went on nervously. What I called about was a pair of shoes. I left there. I wonder if it'd be too much trouble to have the butler send them on. You see, they're tennis shoes, and I'm sort of helpless without them. My address is care of B I didn't hear the rest of the name, because I hung up the receiver. After that, I felt a certain shame for Gatsby. One gentleman to whom I telephoned implied that he had got what he deserved. However, that was my fault, for he was one of those who used to sneer most bitterly at Gatsby on the courage of Gatsby's liquor, and I should have known better than to call him. The morning of the funeral, I went up to New York to see Meyer Wolfsheim. I couldn't seem to reach him any other way. The door that I pushed open, on the advice of an elevator boy, was marked, The Swastika Holding Company, and at first, there didn't seem to be anyone inside. But when I shouted, Hello! Several times, in vain, an argument broke out behind a partition, and presently, a lovely Jewess appeared at an interior door and scrutinized me with black, hostile eyes. Nobody's in, she said. "'Mr. Wolfshime's gone to Chicago.' The first part of this was obviously untrue, for somebody had begun to whistle the rosary tunelessly inside. "'Please say that Mr. Carraway wants to see him. I can't get him back from Chicago, can I?' At this moment, a voice unmistakably Wolfshime's called, "Stella," from the other side of the door. "'Leave your name on the desk,' she said quickly." I'll give it to him when he gets back. But I know he's there. She took a step toward me and began to slide her hands indignantly up and down her hips. You young men think you can force your way in here in any time, she scolded. We're getting sick and tired of it. When I say he's in Chicago, he's in Chicago. I mentioned Gatsby. Oh. She looked at me over again. Was you just, uh, what was your name? She vanished. In a moment, Meyer Wolfsheim stood solemnly in the doorway, holding out both hands. He drew me into his office, remarking in a reverent voice that it was a sad time for all of us, and offered me a cigar. My memory goes back to when I first met him, he said. A young major, just out of the army, and covered over with medals he'd got in the war. He was so hard up, he had to keep on wearing his uniform because he couldn't buy some regular clothes. First time I saw him was when he came into Weinbrenner's pool room at 43rd Street and asked for a job. He hadn't eaten anything for a couple of days. Come on, have some lunch with me, I said. He ate more than four dollars worth of food in a half an hour. Did you start him in business? I inquired. Start him? I made him. Oh, I raised him up out of nothing, right out of the gutter. I saw right away he was a fine-appearing, gentlemanly young man, and when he told me he was in Oxford, I knew I could use him good. I got him to join the American Legion, and he used to stand high there. Right off, he did some work for a client of mine, up to Albany. We were so thick like that and everything. He held up two bulbous fingers always together. I wondered if this partnership had included the World Series Transaction in 1919. Now he's dead, I said after a moment. You were his closest friend, so I know you'd want to come to his funeral this afternoon. I'd like to come. We'll come then. The hair in his nostrils quivered slightly, and as he shook his head... His eyes filled with tears. I... I can't do it. I can't get mixed up in it, he said. There's nothing to get mixed up in. It's all over now. When a man gets killed, I never like to get mixed up in it in any way. I keep out. When I was a young man, it was different. If a friend of mine died, no matter how, I stuck with them to the end. You may think that's sentimental, but I mean it, to the bitter end. I saw that for some reason of his own, he was determined not to come. So I stood up. Are you a college man? He inquired suddenly. For a moment I thought he was going to suggest a connection, but he only nodded and shook my hand. Let us learn to show our friendship for a man when he is alive, and not after he is dead, he suggested. After that, my own rule is to let everything alone. End of chapter 9, part 1 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald So, call me a little sentimental, but... I feel like I could see Chapter 9 being actually a prologue, a beginning to this wonderful novel known as The Great Gatsby. Imagine for me, if you will, Nick Carraway sitting in his house on a dreary, rainy day in his study, writing a memoir of a man whom he knew to be his friend. Jay Gadsby, and he's sitting in front of a window, staring out over the Gadsby estate as he is recalling this terrible moment in his life up to this point. Gadsby has passed away, and he decides he is going to take it into his hands to clear the air, to write a true account of who this man really was, the tabloids, the party goers, even some of his acquaintances, don't know who the real Gadsby is because Gadsby wouldn't let them into his life. He only showed them what he wanted them to see. But to Nick, initially, I feel like Nick was used as a as a pawn, as a tool, to gain access. To the one human being that Gatsby wanted, which of course was Daisy. However, I believe that Gatsby actu- actually started to show an affinity towards his neighbor Nick and decided to let him in. And of course, Nick being no slouch himself and not corrupted by the upper class society to which he had found himself has a lot more observational skills than the average Joe off the street. And he is able to look past the allure of the fancy show and tell that Gatsby puts on each evening and sees instead a man who is grasping at the air, peering out over the waters towards a green light on a dock across the bay in east egg he sees gatsby as a heartbroken man living in the past trying to retain something that he has lost and so um chapter nine really feels like to me a a uh, a beginning of sorts. I know it logically follows Chapter 8, but time-wise, I, he could have written this at any point. Um, and at the beginning, we, we find out it was two years since. And so, it's almost like, I want people to know who Gatsby really is. This is my story. So, as I think we conclude Chapter 9... I think we'll also start to see that nick is is weaving a masterful tale to be able to show us gatsby as he is so um yeah it was a very it was a very touching moment i felt like you know as gatsby is is seeking out people to be able to uh attend this poor man's funeral i mean Even Gatsby's father doesn't know who the real Gatsby is. And so um, Nick is left dumbfounded that he even goes to Meyer Wolfsheim, who shady as all get out, and um, was doing business dealings with Gatsby at one point in time, if if he wasn't up until Gatsby's death. And so uh, even Wolfsheim, a man who took him under his wing and and built him up into the, the shrewd businessman that Gatsby was, refuses to come to the funeral. And so I feel like this was the last straw for Nick. You know, you could sense his irritation in the way that he was communicating with different people. I mean, the fact that he just hung up on Clipspringer um, shows a, a huge character development in Nick as a man. Because I feel like, up till this point, he was relatively passive towards his surroundings, just trying to, to gather all of the information and all of the facts together before he, he uh, gave a reaction. Very, very well measured in his emotional responses. But when it comes to Gadsby, by golly, he is going to defend his friend like the loyalist dog that you have ever known i mean nick is at a crossroads and is a little bit ticked off that nobody is acting humanely after a very tragic incident so um yeah i mean we're we're here now um we're coming to an end in a couple of weeks we will finish the great gatsby and uh We will see uh, a conclusion, I feel, that will best, most accurately represent the heart of Nick for his dear, dear friend. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Next week, we start a new case in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes' compendium, entitled The Adventure of the Lion's Mane. I hope you join me. Until then, for now, as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote.